Anna Katrina Shedletsky spent almost six years at Apple working as a product design engineer. What's a product design engineer? They're the folks who work out how to pack the suitcase, how to stuff all the technology into the beautiful enclosures designed by Johnny Ives' industrial design team. The product design engineers also help figure out how those products get made in their millions on giant production lines in Asia. In fact, Anna Katrina spent a lot of time on production lines while working on four generations of the iPod and then as the product design lead for the Apple Watch. Anna Katrina has since left Apple and has used her hard-earned expertise to launch a machine learning startup. The name of her company is Instrumental, and it uses AI technology to help companies find and fix problems on factory assembly lines. In this episode, we talk to Anna about big changes ahead for manufacturing, how Instrumental is laying the groundwork for truly intelligent factory robots, and how giant companies like Apple design and manufacture products in their millions. It's an extremely complex process where a lot of things can go wrong. So, hey, Anna, thanks very much for uh, coming in today. You had uh, a long career at Apple before launching your new company, Instrumental. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your new company and what it does? Uh, Yeah. So my company is Instrumental. And what we do is we help hardware companies find and fix issues on their manufacturing lines so that they can ship their products on time um, and at high levels of quality that Apple-like quality. Okay, Apple-like quality and, and Apple-like numbers, I take it too, yeah? Uh, potentially, yes. We uh, we work with a broad range of customers from very small startups to Fortune 500s. Okay, and this um, came to light because of your experience working at Apple? Certainly, my time at Apple as a product design engineer uh, exposed me to manufacturing in a way that you could not get exposed to in any other any other job. I was able to see some of the most advanced manufacturing lines in the world and some of the most rudimentary manufacturing lines in the world. And this was a great survey of kind of where is consumer electronics manufacturing today. And that kind of clued me into the fact that there's a lot of changes that haven't been happening in manufacturing over the last two decades, but that are starting to change now. And so that was a, an opportunity that I was made aware of because of the exposure I got in my in my role at Apple. What are those changes? Consumer electronic devices are almost 100% handmade, bespoke, hand-assembled. They're produced in these facilities on lines that are standard line length is 110 meters long. A person is 0.6 meters wide, uh, and they are stacked down this line. Hundreds of hands touch a, a smartphone, regardless of if it's an Apple smartphone or Samsung or Google smartphone. This is this is state of the art for assembly of these complicated, highly miniaturized devices. And I think a lot of people imagine robots are doing this stuff already. You hear about automation and manufacturing in the news, but that's that hasn't made it to consumer electronic assembly. Other other industries are a little further ahead, um, and like so cars. What's interesting about cars is that there's only a really small piece of the line that's automated, and that's the piece that you see all the YouTube videos with the big robot arms. That's uh-huh, so the uh-huh. body shop part of the line. Okay. There's extensive part of interior assembly that robots aren't doing. Humans are doing those those jobs today. And so there's still a very human element. And in the consumer electronic industry, there have been opportunities to expand into new technologies as robotic arms have become more prevalent and CCD systems, essentially computer vision systems, systems, actuators, all of this has has creeped into various aspects of 
consumer electronic assembly, but not specifically the integration of all the parts, the final assembly, the put the display, put the enclosure, all the speaker, speaker, battery, all that stuff is still hand done by people, hundreds of people. But you mentioned changes. It's changing? Yes. yes. And so Foxconn, Flextronics, Jable, those are the top three contract manufacturers in the world. And there's a long slew beneath them as well. They're all very interested in pursuing automation. And so there is actually an initiative in the Chinese government is supporting where they want to replace 800,000 workers by 2020. Wow. Um, so this is a right government-sponsored the- initiative that Foxconn and Flextronics and others are are really interested in trying to to replace these people with machines. And so that work is ongoing, and Foxconn releases press releases about how many workers they've replaced. Um, and so this is this was the evidence of a crack in the wall that had previously kept out this kind of technology. Finally, finally, it's now cheap enough and viable um, and nimble enough for the types of activities that humans are doing, and that creates an opportunity for a company like ours, which really leverages the data that those types of robots could collect. Okay. And so, um, what uh, you know? What, what what exactly is a product engineer? What is that? What, yeah. what is that role? So I'm a. I was formerly a product design engineer, um, and so a product design engineer is kind of fancy way of saying mechanical engineer. In my role, I worked on three different iPods, and then I led system product design for Apple Watch Series One. And in as a product design engineer, I did a variety of things. Starts in the architecture phase where uh, you are responsible for designing the CAD, the computer model of the new product for what I call packing the suitcase, which is getting all the parts to fit into that beautiful industrial design and uh, negotiating that process with all of the stakeholders involved. And then actually taking that design, selecting materials, doing validation on the part level, going to China very frequently, doing these engineering builds. This is all very standard process throughout the industry, but doing these engineering builds and essentially my role as a product design engineer was to validate that it was possible to build uh, units at mass production yields at mass production speeds on one line. And once we were able to validate that, we got to hand off our role to operations who would then scale up that to many lines and very high volume in mass production. And so I'm interested in how you interface with the the different teams. So the product design, they're in between the industrial design team that creates the form factor and the operations team that works out how these things are made in factories at massive scales. Yeah, there's many teams at Apple. Um, so absolutely, the industrial design team is is holding the vision of what the product should look like, um, and even in, at times how it should function and what the customer experience should be. There is an operations team also called manufacturing design team who really treats the, the manufacturing process as a product that also should be designed. Um, so how the parts are made, what are the specific tooling paths for this unibody enclosure or this particular part? Where do we put the the gates on the injection molding tools. There are people who are really good at all of these aspects who are responsible for that kind of expertise. There's, there's paint people who are good at painting and coating parts. A lot of, um, a lot of plastic components get painted, even though it doesn't look like they're painted. And so there, there's these teams. There's also these kind of, um, these additional teams that are, that are excellent at a key functional area. So there's a battery team, there's a display team, there's a touch team. Um, each of kind of these key components has a team where they focus on their experts who are hired in, who know how to develop 
awesome acoustic systems and work together with the broader team to ensure that the product has awesome acoustics and meets the requirements. And everyone's working simultaneously, you know, in concurrently to, to, together, or does it go from one team to another? Is uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of working together throughout the whole process. And operations is involved very early on, but they ultimately essentially take over from R&D and really scale up the process. But it's they're involved early on to make sure that as a product design engineer, I don't design something that's not going to be manufacturable at volume. They make sure that you're not designing something that isn't going to be manufacturable. Yes. Too many double, too many negatives. Yeah, so, okay. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. So they, yeah. they make sure that you're, you're making something that can be made. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we work together on that. That's a push and pull. Okay. Because um, absolutely at, at any of these kind of top consumer electronics devices companies, they are pushing the limits every single product cycle. There's new technology that hasn't existed before. There's thinner wall sections. The rules get broken. And so that's a push and pull. But to make sure that we we make good choices around risk from a production standpoint and a design standpoint. Uh, we work together very closely, um, and then ultimately, design and R and D gets to gets to step away as we start to to kind of scale production. And this is very common as a process in the industry. And in general, how long is this process? Well, it can vary for product to product. It can vary based on the urgency of that particular product, or it can vary because maybe the, the idea for what the product should be isn't totally clear yet. And some prototypes have to be built at scale to really understand, is this product working, especially in a new space where there wasn't previously a product like that for a first generation for product. Example. So for example, some products could potentially run in on a scale of months, like six months. Some products could take years, many, many years. Okay. Um, and just lots of iterative cycles. And it really depends, really depends on the product. So we, in our capacity at Instrumental, get to work with other Fortune 500s as well who have similar processes and, again, similar kind of scales on their schedules. Some of these schedules are super urgent, super fast, nice and tight, and some of them are there. there is time that has been designed in for exploration of what the product should be. Right, and so I, presumably, you know, products like uh, cell phones, which tend to get refreshed every year, these are the kind of short product cycles that you're talking about? Depends. Because some of the technology and some of these products could have started being developed years ago. Okay. Right? There's, yeah, yeah. Um, and when it's ready, it then it could potentially go into a new product. So uh, it, it appears as though these things get refreshed every year, but actually some of them have been in the pipeline for three, four, potentially. maybe longer. P- some of the components, some of the technologies, absolutely, potentially. Like the, these new technologies don't get invented in the, in the six month timeframe that right. you have to run a program or yeah. in the 18 month timeframe. Yeah. Um, you can look at, you can look at other companies like, uh, Samsung or LG, um, in terms of OLED technology, for example. It took them many years to figure out how did they, they were showing at CES flexible OLED displays for years before they shipped a phone that had an OLED display in it. Um, and so all of that, you have to, ca- like, you, you have to kind of count the development of, of that new technology kind of in the, in the schedule, but the actual schedule of the, the product itself is kind of pulling the technologies that are ready, pulling those together into a new product and then executing on a design that, that makes that product real. Uh, and, uh, uh, how complex a process is this? It sounds really horrifically complex, and a lot of things can go wrong. 
it it is actually quite complex. And what's really interesting about it is that there's not a lot written about the best practices for how to do this process. Because? I think this is a very secretive industry. And there's, in general, people people are trained not to talk about what they do. Uh Um, Uh I didn't use the word watch as a verb for the period of time i was working on a watch program like to watch tv no we're going to <laughs> use some oh, other wait, so never use that word <laughs> um because it was there's just like this this kind of secrecy around how this stuff gets done and because there's secrecy there's confusion uh-huh. and there's even confusion on the team around what what is what is an evt build is a great example um so during before you get to production units that you're building for customers. You do these practice builds. This is industry standard. These practice builds are essentially groups of prototypes that are built so that you can test them and iterate on the design and make sure the design is ready for mass production. And that's, that acronym you used, EVT, is... Uh... EVT it means Engineering Validation Test. Okay. Um, and this is, you can, this is a term that's defined on Wikipedia as Engineering Validation Test, and then there's very little other information about what it means. Okay. Um, and so actually we wrote, Instrumental wrote a guide uh, that goes through in details based on our interviews across the industry. What is an EVT? What are the entry criteria, exit criteria? What do you need to accomplish in this build to actually get to EVT maturity? And it's one of the, essentially we've, we've got, we've got these key spots on the internet that nobody had written content for. Um, and so these have, we've been told have been printed out and sent to manufacturers around the world pinned up in in engineering war rooms around like, okay, have we reached EVT level maturity? Can we move to the next stage? Um, and there's just a lot of confusion around what these processes actually mean, but there's this general consensus in the industry that you you do several builds, you are ever moving towards a more manu- uh, mass production capable process. Um, and then when you're ready, you turn it on and kind of hope for the best. Uh, and that's when in throughout that process, things can go wrong. And that's kind of where we come in. So between first prototype and first production unit, which could be, as I said, like six months to 18 months or longer, depending on the product, there are hundreds, if not thousands of issues that need to be found and resolved by engineers. And today, you know, any one of those issues could actually block a product from being released and launched to customers or delay the launch of that product. Um, and today, engineers rely on very manual processes to find these issues. They get on planes and fly to China yeah. um, or wherever the factory is, often in Asia. They stand on manufacturing lines for hours, trying to be in the right place at the right time to see that an operator, one time out of 100, pulls uh, the release liner from left to right instead of right to left. And that created a difference that creates a problem down the line. Wow. Um, and so the stability of some of these, and 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 that's a problem too in the design like if you've designed a product that's so sensitive as a product design engineer i'm always thinking about this if i've designed a product that's so sensitive that that difference matters for whether the product's going to pass or fail or be successful then maybe there's a design issue that i need to work on as well not just a process issue and or operator training issue and so these are the types of things that kind of come up during development that have to get hammered out part quality is another very common one process like glue large amounts of glue are used in consumer electronic products to hold them together i think a lot of people don't appreciate how much glue there is and glue seems like this great material because you don't it 
fills any gap size and you can put it anywhere. Um, but glues are pretty nasty. They are really difficult to control. Their strength is based on a lot of parameters um, and chemicals eat them. Um, so there's a lot of things that go into selecting and validating a glue process. And so if you're gluing, that's a problem. Um, these types of things are, are kind of where issues come out of. And then there could be issues with the design. Like I could have actually designed parts that at, at times interfere. Or that's something that, that can be put in backwards and it still fits. Those could be design issues. And so those are the types of issues we're helping our customers to find during development. And then during production, we're enabling them to continue monitoring to be able to understand if there's process shifts or when they should take tools down for maintenance or if there are quality shifts or tool qualifications that have to be done. Our, our data is helpful in assisting the issues that arise in production. So, yeah, yeah instrumental, you've developed. Developed a, 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 um, a camera-equipped uh, station. Is that right? Yes. So, and and this goes in in various places in the production line to look for these kind of issues. Yes. So we. We have a combination of hardware and software. We really view ourselves as a software company or as a data company. The reason we build hardware is because we want, we know that the people we're selling to are really busy. They don't have time to integrate expensive software and like doing all of these steps. And so we need an off-the-shelf system that just kind of works. You can, and something and they can plug into their current They um, can plug into their lines. current line. We build a piece of hardware that's very simple. It takes It's a station that goes at key places on the assembly line. Uh, we take high-resolution images at key steps of assembly where you can see key actions. What, so, so I'm sorry, what exactly is a station? What, what do you mean by that? Um, so a station is an overloaded term that's used to refer to essentially a specific space on the line. Uh, that space is usually 0.6 meters wide because that's the width of a person. Um, and so a station could be a specific per, like a space where a person is sitting on the line. It's a specific step or operation that's going to happen. Okay. And, but we have overloaded it to also mean that we build a box, um, and we build a box to control the lighting to take high resolution, high quality images at these key states of assembly. We capture that data. We get that data out of China and into our software. And our software enables our customers to, to view their images from anywhere, to compare and understand variation and anomalies using machine learning techniques. And then we also have uh, the ability to do first pass failure analysis, which is when something goes wrong, what is the first thing you're going to want to do? We let our customers do that through the software, which is to virtually disassemble the unit and even take calibrated ad hoc measurements. Again, this is after because, the so, fact. Because they're finding a problem, they don't necessarily know where that problem originated. They're going to be tracking yeah. it back station after station to see, okay, it happened. Yes. Yeah, so example, here's a good example. So say that you're working on a, a wearable product. A uh, wearable product probably needs to be water resistant because maybe you wash your hands. If it's like on your wrist, you wash your hands, it's splash resistant. Maybe it's out in the rain. Um, if it's headphones or something like that, wearable product needs to be water resistant. You could have a water resistance failure in a reliability test where you're actually trying to demonstrate that and validate you have a water resistant design. And that failure could be caused by a bunch of different root causes. And our software enables our customers to actually go back and disassemble the unit virtually from anywhere from their desk here in California and see, oh, this one's missing a screw. It like just didn't have a screw. And that screw is important for holding the water seal. So I can see that that's the reason why I have a water seal problem. But we can go one step further from root cause and actually help our, our customers get to corrective action. 
And so what that means is I know there's missing a screw. I can look at nearest neighbors on the line to understand where there are more units missing screws. I can use uh, our machine learning techniques and machine learning algorithms to actually um, see if they're automatically look through population of 100 units and see if there's automatically one that's missing a screw as well. Um, and I can understand when that happened on the line, same shift, same day, 15 minutes apart after a break. Uh, these details are really helpful for me to understand how to actually not only understand there was a missing screw, but how to go fix that problem so it doesn't happen again. That's the kind of operational process issue that when you're building a hundred units, these happen, you know, onesie twosies. We call them onesie twosies. One or two units will have this issue. But if you're building a million units a day, that's a lot of units that are going to have that problem. And so the whole idea is solve it when there's only one or two. And then you never have to suffer uh, the fallout of of tens of thousands of units that might have this issue. You mentioned yields in production lines and, and that, you know, people get this impression, I think, that it's 100% yield, but it never is. Is that right? So I initially went to go to Apple to be a product design engineer because I wanted to learn how to build millions of things. And I went in with the now naive idea that in order to build millions of things, you had to be perfect. I mean, if you're building a million a day of something and you have 1% fallout, um, that's a crazy amount of units that, that is not going to get shipped. That's a, if you just think about the space those units take up, where do you put them? How right. do you repair them? And um, so we're I just, we're talking about iPods, right? And in, in terms of your career. Um, well, so I mean, I'm, I'm spouting numbers of a million a day. So like it could be hundreds of thousands a day, but in general, just this idea of, of yields and the, Kind of the, the interesting aspect there is I assume that that meant perfection and it doesn't mean perfection. It means it's very common in the manufacturing process to have procedures and processes that are not 100% yield. And those proce those yields could be as low as 80% yield. That means you put 100 units down the line and only 80 are going to be good. And what do you do with the extra 20? Sometimes those get scrapped. Sometimes they get repaired or reworked. And in that rework process, there's yield fallout as well. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenge around this idea of what do you do with the units that don't meet the spec? And well, one thing is you can prevent those failures from being made. The other thing you can do is you can change the spec. Is the spec the right spec? So the spec is, does this, does this, scratch or does this performance, whatever it is, speaker performance, microphone performance, does it meet the requirements of the product to make sure that the product is a high quality customer experience? That's what a spec means. And so if you were to build a product that had a scratch that was out of spec, um, means it's too big to ship. And uh, for a company like Apple has really staked kind of Apple-like quality on they don't ship anything that has things that people notice. Um, so if it has a scratch, it's probably not going to get shipped. But a startup should probably ship that scratch unit. Um, they are not Apple, and they can't withstand that kind of fallout. And for some products, the fact that there's a scratch on it when it's coming out of the box, still most people won't notice. You have to, some of these things can be very, very, very minor. Um, some of them are, are big, like if the microphone does not work, 
then it's not meeting the spec and it's going to be a bad customer experience regardless of whether you're a large company or a small company. And then that is a problem that you need to fix. And that's how you would u- you would use software like ours to actually go in and try to figure out how you could improve that yield. Um, you can also use our software to understand what the spec should be. Um, cause today, if you want to understand, okay, well, here's like the various levels of scratching, A, B, C, D, and you know, all the way down. If we pick A, it's this percentage yield. If we pick B, it's this percentage yield. And each one going down, like the yield is going up. Like if you accept C level parts, we get a hundred percent yield. But if you only want to ship A, it's 95% yield. And actually being, that is done by doing these massive yield studies where you actually count and inspect parts through a human process. It takes weeks. There are people whose jobs this to do these types of yield studies. And you can use software like ours to very quickly understand what those yields actually are for varying levels of defect, uh, which is an exciting application. So that that could mean like maybe upstream. Let's talk about a part upstream. So you're, you're building a housing enclosure and it's CNC'd and there's a small burr and it's on the inside of the product. So it's not going to affect the outside cosmetics. Do you throw that part out because it's technically out of spec or do you change the spec? <laughs> um, and so, the spec, so yeah. understanding that, oh, well, we've built parts that had burrs like this and they did not have reliability failures or customer impact kind of failures. So maybe we should change the spec and then we don't throw out all these parts and we save resources. This saves money, um, saves time and all of that. And you, you're saying, you know, like uh, the, the, the ones that fail um, inspection, the ones that fail the spec, you know, can be up to, you know, 20% or so. Yeah, yeah. For some parts, some processes, can not you, necessarily do finished good, goods. Do you have any good sort of specific examples you can you can talk about? Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, it was worth asking. <laughs> you mentioned earlier, um, you know, sometimes some, some products that people have been looking forward to um, get delayed. Yes. That was a good example last year. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's many examples from last year. I was just looking at an article of this. Uh, but yeah. Rattle them off. Which ones were you thinking of? Um, so there's a GoPro drone. There was a DJI right. drone. Yeah, yeah, the one there's, the um, there's Apple AirPods, of course. Uh-huh. There were more. I'm just forgetting them. But there were, there were several products where the, it was very clear the product had been delayed. Um, this happens very commonly. I think people expect it in products like Kickstarter products. They don't expect it from these large corporations that they admire that they, of course they have their act together. It's, it's Apple, it's HTC, it's DJI. Like these right. are great these brands. These are the first. Yeah. They've been going for, yeah. You know, they're decades. great brands. They know what they're doing. They have smart people, they have tons of resources. I think the key takeaway is it's really hard. It's really difficult to build high quality product. And these companies do not ship stuff that they don't think meets the customer expectation. And so they'll hold stuff. And so, yeah, these, these product delays are really prevalent. And I think the key point is it, it's really, it's upsetting for the customers who are very excited. Uh, you know, they're going to buy a new iPhone. It doesn't have a headphone jack. They got to use a dongle to like be able to use their headphones because there aren't headphones available yet. Um, so that's upsetting to the customer. But what's likely more upsetting is the, the team that's running that program because they were likely going to ship when that product, why would you ship a product two months later? On purpose, right? That was probably not on purpose. Again, I don't have any background details on this, but just logic would say. And, and logic would say they, they run into a problem, 
you know, why would, why would it be so late in the process? Because surely they must have gone through, like you said, those Absolutely. engineering test validation builds. and Absolutely. So we've, in, in the context of figuring out what product we needed to build at Instrumental, we interviewed hundreds of engineers across the industry, large companies, small companies, multiple positions inside these large companies. And the top two reasons for that kind of delay that they have self-reported are the late discovered issue and then the amount of time it takes once you've discovered an issue to actually get to a root cause that can fix it and validate that root cause and then be ready to ship again. Wow, so um, that takes So this months. can take, it can. So you could imagine that you have a something that only fails after 500 hours of heat soak testing, oh, okay. of thermal testing. And 500 hours is about 20 days. Um, 20 days? I think so. Did I do the math right? <laughs> um, it's a long time. <laughs> Don't ask 500, me. <laughs> 500 hours is a really long time. So you can do, let's say you, you realize you have this problem. You have confirmed that this is required to ship the product for the customer experience that you want based on other data that you have. And so you need to pass this test. And so you can do a new configuration, a new experiment of like, okay, I'm going to build this type of unit and do this one change. And let's see if these pass the 500 hours test that you have to wait 500 hours to get the results of that test. Um, and then once you do that, you then have to validate at volume that you didn't break anything else with the fix. And so this could take weeks. I don't, you know, I don't know if that was the issue, particularly with Apple AirPods. It could have been an issue like that. It could have been a software related issue. Um, often a lot of these issues don't become apparent until you get to volume and you don't get to volume until you're almost ready to ship. So that's that late discovered issue. Well, 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 so uh, do you have an example of that? You mean, how, how come you don't discover it when you get to volume? Isn't that the whole point of doing the engineering uh, validation thing? Mm -hmm. Remember we talked about the onesie twosies? Uh-huh. So right now, the best tools that engineers have to find these issues are performance-based tests that they that they design and put on the line to measure the speaker and measure the microphone and measure the antenna performance. So they have those tests, and then they have measurements that they that they set up measurement plans for that do geometries, and then they have right place, right time on the line to spot it. And so those are the tools they have at their disposal, and those only cover certain areas. And so it's very easy for you could have you could have 20 antenna failures in a development build like an early build and that's a lot of failures and the antenna engineer will go through each one of them and will do failure analysis process and disassemble the unit and try to come up with what was the root cause for this failure and they might find that oh this one in this particular unit like it appears that an operator has smashed the antenna and bent it and so it's not an antenna issue, it's a process issue. And what's very common, this is actually a true story for one of our customers, what's very common is that that antenna engineer is like, okay, not my problem, check off the box. Uh, but the information doesn't get transferred <laughs> okay. to the person who can actually make the change on the manufacturing line. But because they were using our product, they noticed that there was this issue. Someone else was looking at the antennas and saw that this one was clearly bent. Yes, it failed the test, so it would never have been shipped, even if this was in production, but it also like flagged in another way, which is just it's visually off, it's different. And so they were able to make a change, a fixture change on the line to prevent that type of damage. Uh, and so they never suffered future issues for bending of the antenna in this way, because the antenna was protected by that fixture. And this is exactly the type of issue that if you went into production and you're ramping multiple lines and you have operators who have gone through operator training, but are still still very new and green and haven't done the operation many times yet could 
could cause that kind of damage and you could have a huge bone pile. Or if you have bone pile? A bone pile. This is a okay. this an is an industry, a industry term. term for uh a pile of units that you that you won't be able to ship uh, okay. unless they've been repaired. I see. Um and so it's a bad thing. You do yeah. not want a bone pile. It's often the the size of the bone pile is often like quantified in dollars. Um and so you don't want to keep in mind that like every single one of these units is a, is a problem in dollars. Right. Okay. <laughs> and so, uh, what kind of numbers are we talking about? You know, these assembly lines, um, you know, Fexcon employs, is it a million workers? Assembly so, workers on, on- so I read, I read that there's 800,000 people that work at Foxconn Guanlan, which is the Fair Labor Association went and did an investigation there a couple of years ago. There's video online of kind of what this facility looks like, but there's, these places are huge. They're massive How to big? do this type of scale. Um, so Foxconn Guanlan is called Foxconn City. And it has, th- these are self-contained cities that include not only the manufacturing lines, they include little stores and they include uh, all sorts of restaurants. There's little operator they, dormitories. They they, uh, have, they consume 3,000 pigs a day. I, Something like could that. Could be completely reasonable. Um, it's a lot of people. And then there's all these, what's very interesting about China. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in China over 300 days in the past five years or so. And what's very interesting is outside these factories, these little, these little factory towns kind of spring up and the predominant demographic of who's working in these factories are 16 to 24 year old young people. And so what does a young person want to spend their money on? And that's what's in these factory towns. So there's a lot of like cell phone stores and computer stores and clothing, like fast fashion kind of clothing stores and like karaoke clubs and stuff like that. Um, but there's not a lot else. It's a very interesting dichotomy in the type of culture that kind of builds up around these large places. And they are really large. And mm-hmm. so... They can sustain large. 800,000 kids, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the, the line, the factory itself, though, I mean, is it is the size of like a big airport or a, you a know, bigger? Bigger? <laughs> uh, yeah. The so buildings themselves so are- again, the, the standard line length across the industry for consumer electronic devices, I don't know who came up with this, but it's 110 meters. Um, how long is that? That's like uh, longer than a foot. How long is a football field? 100 yards. So, yeah, just like a little bit field. longer than a football field, yeah. Yes. That doesn't uh, seem very long, actually, and to be so, honest. And so these rooms, these rooms will have, will fit a 110 meter line, and they will often have at least 20 feet on either side of that, uh, so they can get forklifts and stuff through. And then there will be 10, 20, 30 lines on the same floor, like lined up next to each other. All making the same product. Um, at times, they're making the same product. If you have a product that's shipping at volume, um, if you're shipping a million a day, you're having tens of lines, if not hundreds of lines for some of the components. Again, it's not just, it's not just the device. There's all the pieces that go in the device. So they'll that be have making the made. screen and then the, you know, will be one line. Different vendors make different parts, but yeah, the, essentially they're made. Anything that involves this hand assembly is made on these types of lines. Um, sometimes there's other manufacturers who use cell manufacturing. So if you're doing a very small sub assembly where there's only four or five steps, you won't use a 110 meter line. You'll use a, a small little table area with people doing these operations. If you're building something that's very sensitive, like a display or a, a PCB, a printed circuit board, the like main logic board inside of the phone, you're often using highly roboticized equipment and there's very little people engaged in that process. Something like a display, uh, you take the people out because you need a very clean process. 
If no, no dust, no, no If there's a speck of dust between you and your, and your pixels, you're going to see it on, in some conditions. And so in order to get clean enough environments, these are almost entirely roboticized. And again, PCB assembly has been roboticized for a long time and actually very much automated. And on these, on a line like PCB assembly, it's very common to get super high yields. So 99%, 99.8% yield, very, very common to be able to achieve this where it's actually incredibly difficult to be able to achieve yields like that on a complicated product in the actual final assembly of the product. There's just, there's a human factor and like humans do things not on purpose, of course, but like humans make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The screwdriver is like swinging on the line and it like hits a part and now there's a scratch on it. These things happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, 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 these factories, the size of hangers, 800,000 people. Yeah. And then multiple floors. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Multiple stories. So what's really interesting about Foxconn Guanlan is they actually have multiple, there is, there is the street level and then there are skywalks like on the second floor. Uh, cause there's so many people during a shift change that they needed additional, they needed to open up a second line for people to be able to get from building to building. There's just a lot of, a lot of human movement going on. And for something like, um, a highly anticipated product, uh, that, you know, might be coming out in the fall, um, and millions, tens of millions of people are going to be buying them on day one. They have, to, when do they have to start making these in order to fulfill that demand? <laughs> I'm going to say there, you don't have to be specific about that. Well, so, you know, you know so, what about Yeah, Samsung, so let's talk about the industry at large from a consumer electronics standpoint. Consumer electronics, the main market is the holiday shopping season. That's the main market window for a phone, for headphones, for a watch, for some IoT home product. And Almost so everything, yeah. The things that you would buy as, for others is gifts. So that's why you might have noticed that a lot of consumer electronic products come out in September or October because they're trying to capture that holiday market. And the ones that are coming out in December, those are late. Those are the late ones. They're the ones that made a mistake and they... Something happened. Something happened. Maybe they didn't make a mistake, but something happened. Uh Um, And so in order to, to hit this market, you want to have be shipping like September 1st, kind of the industry standard. You've got three months then to sell. These are all peak months of sales. So you're ramping up your quantities to be able to be at peak volume in that September, October timeframe. And then your volumes are expected usually to go down in January. People don't buy a lot of consumer electronic devices in January, except the ones that they wish they'd gotten as gifts, perhaps. <laughs> um, but this, again, is very standard across the industry. This is not Apple specific. But in order to be able to be shipping at peak volumes, you need to have ramped up to volume. And so when you start with one line, it would be very common for one line to only make Again, this could be any type of product, but if you're, if there's humans involved, humans can only move so fast. And so a very fast human operation could be nine seconds, which means your line is running at a certain u- number of units per hour. And maybe you're producing between 3,000 and 5,000 units per shift on that one line. And so if you need to be making a hundred thousand units a day, you can do the math to figure out that you need to, you need to have 20 lines doing that. Or if you need to be making 20,000 units a day or 5,000 units a day, you only use one line. Um, and so you don't need to replicate lines. And so if you're repli- if you have to do that replication, all of those lines require operator training and bring up and validation. Like you don't just 
turn it on and be like, okay, it's good. Like, let's everybody just do it now because these operators have never built anything before. And so they need to train um, and understand how to actually build a product to create something at the yield that you got on that first line. That first line is called the golden line. And that line is kind of the control group for any any future line gets compared to that first line and its yields and needs to meet a certain criteria before it's allowed to make units for customers. So for a big so, excuse me so for a big uh, a big product you know that'll be coming out in September that golden line when would that be set up normally like in so, January or So part of my job as a product design engineer um, or mechanical engineers in other companies is to make that golden line um, and that may also include operations, manufacturing design folks, et cetera, as well are involved in the process of making that golden line. When I said that my responsibility was to demonstrate, like as product design, their responsibility is to demonstrate mass production yields at mass production speeds on one line. That one line is the golden line. And so that the golden line is the first line that's set up to build the first prototype on day one of development builds. Okay. Um, and that line you, you try to not change anything on it if you can. And so what's tricky about that, though, is because there could be months or years in between when you start building on that line and when you actually get to production. And so you, you don't want to change anything. I'm an engineer. Like, control all variables. Well, this operator quits. Then what? You have to bring in a new operator. That operator has no experience. Now you've changed a variable. Or, oh, we want to, this operation is slower than we thought it is. So we need to add three more operators so that the whole line can run at nine seconds, meaning each station takes only nine seconds. And so these are the types of, these are the types of things that happen normally. And you might make changes because you have problems. And so that changes the line as well. And so the, the golden line is, is constantly evolving to a certain point in development and then it's locked. Then it should, it's essentially, it's golden. Don't touch it. And every new line has to be compared to that one. And if you're trying to validate something new, if you're making a change somewhere else, let's say, you need to bring up another tool for an injection molding tool um, that's a big part of the enclosure that you would validate that new tool on the golden line because you know the line is good. You can check to see if like new parts are good or not. So it's it's used in a very careful way. I see. Um, yeah. 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 So it's not exactly the way I, you know, it sort of described it. It's like, you know, the, um, the, the beginning of It's the control this, this for the experiment, right? right? Yeah, and, I and I mean, this is a process that was invented by engineers. So think about how engineers would think about it. It's like scientific method, like try to control everything and then use that as the control for future lines. But but scaling, so, so the golden line has been around for a very long time in its current iteration, you know, in its current iteration when it's ready to go, that's the point at which it gets replicated. And um, that's the point at which you start what's called ramp. Ramp, okay. And ramp is where you are building ever more units every day. Um, and the way you build more units every day is you might start a line two. And you want to do that carefully, I take it, right? To make sure that you don't Again, engineers are, engineers are in control of this process. And so, yes, they uh, you don't want to just turn on the second line at full full speed because um, you have a whole line full of operators. Could be 100 operators, could be 400 operators sitting on, you know, sitting in various parts of this process. And so you... You want to first day, you might only build a few and like actually train every single person down that line. Like that's somebody's job. The line leader does that. And then the next day you might build tens or you might build hundreds. And if the peak capacity of the line is 5,000, like you build up to that, but you test, every, you test, you, you take a break and actually test like, okay, what was the yield that we built on the line when we built a hundred? Was the yield high enough to try to build 500? And so there, there are people's jobs in the operations side who really get into the details on this. And they have models that I don't understand around how you actually 
actually uh, tune the knobs to to ramp to ramp responsibly, where you're not going to create a huge bone pile of units you can't ship to customers, <laughs> but also to ramp responsibly such that. I mean, it would be horrible if you stood in line for six hours and there wasn't a product for you to buy because that that would just not be the right experience for a customer, right? And so you also want to make sure that there's enough volume available. Okay, so uh, in general, this ramp process um, for a very for a large volume product would be what kind of time frame? A month, two months, three months? Depends on the manufacturing engineer <laughs> who is who is running the process. <laughs> Honestly, like. These, it really depends on the, on the product. I'm trying to get a sort of an idea of like the, just the scale of this operation, right? You know, like companies that are trying to ship for the, the Christmas season should be considering starting like they in the summer is a peak time for them. They got to get their product done, ready to go into volume. And they should be starting to build in volume sometime in the summer to be able to release in the fall to be able to release their product. Cause it's, it's not, you don't ramp in a week unless, unless you have, you're only going to have one line and then you're already ramped as the end of your development. You've demonstrated you can build at mass production speed. You're only going to build one line because that's the volume for the product that you're building 5,000 day. Totally fine. And then, uh, you can, you can just, you don't need to ramp. You're already ramped and you essentially just run that at sustaining uh-huh. an ongoing uh-huh. basis. And then other products you have to actually replicate. And so depending on the amount of amount of lines you have to replicate for, it could take longer, could take weeks, could take months. Yeah. But you know, what about these these uh, you know cell phones that that sell in the millions? You know, yeah, a million a day is a lot. Okay. <laughs> um, and so so again, this is tens of lines, right? Like if you make you can make an assumption that each line is making somewhere between three thousand and five thousand units a day. You can do two shifts. Maybe you could do three shifts depending on the factory that you're working in. Uh, and so you're building, you know, 10,000 on a line a day and you need to build a million. So you need to have a hundred lines. Are those the right numbers? I, I, I hope so. Cause I'll <laughs> sound really dumb. If they <laughs> okay. Cut that part out. I'll, try to, no, I, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll have to go back and, uh, to figure yeah, it out. So, I'm just sort of wondering. So, I mean, okay. You're, yeah, you're building 10,000 a day. You want to build on a, on is that, is that what that, you know, like a million, um, what was it? A million a week. Some products ship in the millions per week. Some ship in the millions per day. Some ship a hundred thousand a day. There is a whole black magic that goes into figuring out how many products to ship for a given market, and I I am not an expert on that because um, you have to make predictions around what your customers want, and it's it's very expensive to be wrong to overshoot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll bet. But so- it's also expensive to undershoot, and so there are people whose job it is to do these kinds of forecasts, I guess. But once you have once you have your target number of what you're supposed to ramp to, there's a whole team that then figures out what is the fastest and cost-effective way to get there. And when you have a deadline looming, if you're a large company that can afford a bone pile of some size, you might decide to make the trade-off to, well, we're going to hold the launch date, but the yields aren't as great as we wanted, so we're going to eat the difference, but we're going to hold the launch date. Because they've done the cost, the cost, the opportunity cost to understand, like, losing those sales for that day versus not versus the fallout will have or have to eat or repair. Right. Um, and so somebody's done that math. Yeah. 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 Sorry. This got like really technical. It's okay. No, <laughs> I, I like it. I, I find it fascinating. And, um, uh, because it's something that you don't see. It's, it's, that's, it's, it's the Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, right? It's, it's all behind the scenes. Right. And what's, what's really fascinating is it's pretty much the same everywhere. This isn't like a, it's even though it's pretty much the same everywhere and nobody talks about it. 
but it is very interesting stuff. Like how did this product get built and get in front of me and that I use every day? Right. How did that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it looks perfect. How did that happen? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. How big are the teams um, in, inside these companies? Not, not at the factories, but, the, you know, the, the product engineering team, the operations team, the, the design team. In general, how, you know, uh, is it hundreds of people, dozens of people or hundreds of people? Uh, it depends. What on the product. A big company like Apple. So like in a big company, there could be hundreds of people working on a program. Um, what's really interesting about consumer electronic devices and hardware in general, I always say hardware is hard. And the reason hardware is hard is because it's software plus a whole extra piece, which is hardware, and then the integration between the two. So it's actually three times as hard. There's three, there's two extra things you have to do besides software. And so there's a software team that's developing new features that take advantage of the new functionality that might be in the new product. There's, there's the actual teams who are, who are doing the work on the operation side or engineering side. And then there's all sorts of support as well outside of engineering. Marketing needs to be lined up all the like biz operate business operations channel part. And like there's, there's so much involved in actually getting a product out at a large company at a small company. It's really fascinating to see how they take these hundred, pe- hundreds of people operations and really shrink them down. Um, and this is, this is why small companies buy our, buy our software is because they, they see that there's going to get amplification of their small team and large companies buy the software because they see that they're going to save lots of money if they can cut even 12 hours out of a process or one day off their schedule or like ship on time, but they would have normally shipped on September 2nd instead of September 1st. That's a whole day of peak sales they get. That's millions or tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars that they can get in revenue by having that peak day of sales. And so that's, there's this kind of interesting dichotomy but when you go down to a small company, they might have one mechanical engineer. They might have one operations person who interfaces with the factory, one marketing person or an outsourced firm, and these a double E software team of three or four. And so you can you can shrink this down into a 10-person team or into a into a 50-person team, and you can build a great product. Um, it would be very challenging to do that at volumes with a team that small. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, going back to what we, we, we were talking about at the very beginning, when you said there's an opportunity now, presumably we were talking about automation, much more automation. Yeah. And so how does, how does you, uh, your box fit into when, when, when things are much more automated? How does yeah, that work? I'm really glad you asked this question because this really speaks to the larger vision of what we are working on as a company. And so there is this sea change coming to manufacturing where automation is going to replace people. This, this is happening. And I know that there are, there are people in our society who, who talk about that as a bad thing, but this war was one or the, the war was won a long time ago with John Henry, like back then. And it's just taken each individual thing as a battle, but the war's been won. And this is actually very important because automation enables the next thing. And what is the next thing? The next thing is intelligence. And we want as, as a country and like as an individual myself, like I want to, to be developing that next thing on an even playing field with everybody else who might also be developing that next thing. And so automation is a great thing to have because it means that we can be developing these kind of the next step. And the next step is intelligence. And the reason that's important is it enables us to essentially have smart 
intelligent engines, AIs that run these manufacturing lines that are automated already. Someone has automated them. What is the brain that is running that line? And that brain needs to be able to do smart things that currently people do. And when you have the ability to, to enable the machines to do what they're good at and the humans to do what we're good at, uh, then you can create something that is a lot more efficient to get a product out. You can build anywhere. It doesn't matter. It's the cost of the land that you put the factor on. It doesn't matter if that land is as near people with expertise because the expertise is in the software. Um, and so that's the vision that we see and kind of this inevitable flow from automation to intelligence. And that's the space where we're working. Back to your original question. Well, so then why do you have a box that goes on a line with people? And that question, the, the answer there is that we're not making the assumption that the things that have already been automated provide data that's actually valuable yet. And so we actually created a system to go out and get data that we think is much more valuable. It's not currently readily available. And that data enables us to build kind of the first pieces of this analysis engine, this intelligence engine. Yeah. And data the, for machine learning. Huh? Yes, with machine learning. And so these machine learning features that we have is just pulling back the corner, like peeling back the corner of the drape on this whole uh, intelligence engine that we're building for manufacturing and kind of demonstrating kind of what is the what is the power of this technology already and kind of reaching towards the potential of what it could be in the future right okay yeah B building intelligent automated yeah so uh, so we build a box and it goes on lines where there are people working or on transition lines where there's people and machines but it collects data that's not currently available and so that's why we have to build a box do you give thought to the social issues uh, or the political issues? Obviously, you know, like this is a hot button topic right now, given the election. Do you see manufacturing coming back to the United States? Human manufacturing? And then the second question, which is related to that, is like, you know, I think, does it create, does, you know, if you order, if you take away those jobs, does it create new jobs, different jobs to replace those jobs? Yeah. So. I I respect the multiple political views on this issue because I think this is actually a very complicated issue. I think that stopping the flow of technology advancement in manufacturing would be a mistake. And impossible, right? It's it is it will be an it's inevitable at this point that automation will happen. There may be some there may be some operations that are done by people for a long time to come, but for operations that machines can do, we should let machines do them. And my perspective on this is the reason we need to do that is so that we can be working on the next step. We can't start working on the next step. Like we're, we had to build a piece of hardware to start working on that next step because the robots don't exist. If the robots existed, we could just use the data from the robots. And so we had to build a piece of something to actually get to the next step. And we want to be, I think, like as a country, as a society, as a world working on technology that saves resources, whether that's money, time, materials, and raw materials, and we should be working on that. And, and intelligence is this great opportunity, and it's also really powerful. And so I think the kind of the advent of intelligence in manufacturing is really what we should be thinking of. We could certainly, I mean, you can, you can give a man a backhoe or you can give him a spoon and they'll both be able to dig a hole. But we would think that would be ludicrous today. And so we should, we should be embracing these technological advances. And I, I believe that there's a lot of work to be done on what happens then in society. And I, I have to believe that like every other technological advance in the past, like the advent of the computer put a lot of typists out of work, but look at all of the 
the jobs that exist now because of computers that right. would not have existed if we were still using typewriters. And yeah. I, I guess as an, as a, as an optimist internally, I have to believe that that's something that we'll figure out. Right. And, and having worked on those lines, I mean, I've worked in factories. I can't, you know, those are not enjoyable jobs, which you, you wouldn't, I presume, would not be sad to see those jobs, those assembly jobs go away. Well, I mean, certainly some people will be sad to see those jobs go away. And so I think it's important to keep in mind that there's a very human factor here. But I also think it's important to keep in mind that there's a global society factor that artificially keeping ourselves behind is putting us behind at a much larger scale for what's next. Right. And I think we have to weigh those risks together and, and come up with solutions together. And I think that there's a lot of people that talk about the problems in the space and not a lot of people like working on or actually implementing solutions here. And this is an area of focus that, that I, I wish more time was spent on. Which is a good question. You know, uh, the last question would be, you know, how many other people are working in this space? Are, are you alone or do you have competitors? This is a very interesting space in that it's, it's just starting to crack open. And so there are, there are many large companies and large enterprises who are working on some of the ideas of what we're interested in, whether that's on the appliance side, where they're actually building the equipment itself that does this automation or does measurement and creating this advanced technology, and then, or whether it's on this manufacturing data side, there are a lot of companies that are plugging into the machines that are available, and they can take the data that's on the machine and put that in the, the office of the line leader, and they can review all the data and perhaps be able to understand that there could be insights be generated from that we we kind of take a little bit of a different approach in that we think it's a we think the the power here is the combination of of data with insight and insight data just tells you you have a problem we have a failure rate the failure rate is this insight tells you what to do about that problem and insight is something that intelligence comes up with that's something that people do today and honestly i was a product design engineer i was a i was a pretty darn good one i think most people who worked with me would say but i was limited because my head is full of meat like i can't remember everything i've ever seen i don't remember the serial numbers i don't have a catalog of this data in my head but computers can do that really easily and i think there's this opportunity to kind of let humans do what we do best and let machines do what they do best and leverage those two together. And machines can crunch lots of data that enables the creation of insights. And that's, that's what we're working on is building that kind of intelligence. And there are certainly, there are companies that have kind of touched on various areas, but we think that we're unique in this particular space in the market. There are big players who are working on many problems in manufacturing, including where all this data goes, uh, what collects it, um, the contract manufacturers themselves themselves are building a lot of equipment and technology themselves. Um, it's an area of intense, intense development. And I, I suspect there's 10 companies that haven't come out of stealth yet in, in the US and 10 more in China and 10 more in India. And that like that this is an area that is growing and going to become ever more prevalent in the in the years to come. Okay, so there are other companies like you startups probably yeah, machine learning I, being I a, mean, being a- as a as a founder, it's my job to be kind of paranoid about <laughs> about everybody else and we don't make the assumption that we're the only ones working on this that being said we've we've got a great start 
We have Fortune 500 companies that use our equipment. We uh, use our equipment and software who have come back for repeat business. We have companies that are expanding their contracts with us. We have, um, we're currently deployed in multiple Foxcons and Flextronics in multiple countries, three countries at this time. So we, we've got a good, a good initial kind of reach into this market, but it's just the beginning. And right. we're not, we're not cocky enough to believe that, you know, that we're alone. It, it, it's, you know, you just read a lot about AI and machine learning. And, and I think this is a really good example of how it is becoming integrated into, into almost every aspect of our lives. And, yes. and, and the reason I asked about this sort of competition is like, is it's, you know, like, it's not just you who had this idea. It's, it's this sort of general trend that is going on across the industry. So machine learning is one of those terms that has become very buzzwordy. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, as a company, we try to stay away from these buzzwords as much as possible, but it is, it is the technology that we use and leverage. And really kind of the opportunity is that we are taking technology that's been developed and evolved in the consumer space for like things like Netflix providing recommendations and, and, you know, restaurant, all that kind of recommendation engine stuff is kind of a, an early application for machine learning, um, fraud detection, uh, on comments to like push troll comments down. That is often done by machine learning. Fraud detection that pushes troll comments down is kind of the same as anomaly detection, which is what our software does. But ours is in the photographic space. That's in the natural language processing space. And so kind of taking these technologies that have been developed in consumer and taking those and bringing them to an industry that honestly kind of gets overlooked a lot. It's a very unsexy space. I think it's really awesome, but it's it's generally unsexy. And so this creates an opportunity between the two. That being said, like one of the things, one of the interesting questions I'm often asked is how, how do we come up with this idea to do this particular thing? And is it truly that unique? And what is, what we've always done as engineers is we want to get out and we want to talk to the people we're going to build a product for. So after we left Apple, I spent several months. We thought we were going to build robots, actually. We started as a robot company. We're two mechanical engineers. So, of course, we'd start a robot <laughs> company. Yeah. Um, but what we realized when we went and we talked to uh, at least 100 engineers, companies of varying sizes, that and also factories, not just engineers, but also factories and what they wanted and what they saw, we realized that the robots were less interesting than the data and that there's not a lot of software power being put in the manufacturing space. And that was, that was even though there are engineers who could tell us, oh man, you're building that thing. I've always wanted that thing. I've always dreamed of that thing. The ability to see these images from anywhere, that would be awesome. I, I wanted that. Like I thought of that a year ago. This is a very common reaction, but nobody's actually done it. And so I think the the unique advantage that we have as a company is that we're building software for mechanical engineers, which doesn't happen very often. And we're mechanical engineers to start. And so we're building software for real problems that we have faced and that this slew of engineers we've talked to have also faced. And that's enabled us to tune what we build. And so we very quickly scrapped the idea of building robots and instead focused on this power of data and software. And so, yes, two mechanical engineers have founded a software company. doesn't happen that often. Um, but again, I think that's what kind of makes us special. Okay, very cool. Okay, well, thanks so much, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. I'd like to thank Anna-Katrina Shedletsky, the CEO and founder of Instrumental. You can find more information about Instrumental at 
instrumental.com. You can also check out cultofmag.com. We have a couple of posts this week about Anna Katrina and her company. That was Kane's Corner, a weekly podcast about the world of Apple. New episodes come out every week. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And if you like the show, leave a review or a rating. It helps a lot. And please check out cultofmag.com and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, we're at cultofmag. And Facebook is facebook.com slash cultofmag. See you next time.